everybody. Welcome back to the Men on Miscarriage podcast, where I interview men who have traveled through miscarriage and are willing to share their story. We hope that this is a gift to you, no matter who you are, a guy, girl, husband, wife, mother, father, or even just relative or friend. Uh, We hope that this is a resource for you to be able to get inside the mind of uh, a guy uh, who's gone through this and maybe get a little bit of insight into somebody you know and how to love and care for them well. Uh, this is a great interview I'm super excited about. I'm interviewing my friend Dominic, who's a new friend, uh, got an interesting story uh, and a really cool accent. So I hope you enjoy. Hey, everybody. Uh, thank you for jumping in on uh, our Men on Miscarriage podcast with Dominic. How to pronounce your last name, Dominic? Uh, Gneers. Gneers. That's what I thought. But then I didn't want to be that guy that pronounces it wrong. <laughs> Gineers, uh, we're going to interview uh, Dominic's uh, journey with miscarriage. Uh, he's going to share a little bit of his story, who he is, and uh, just appreciate the opportunity to get a chance to talk to you more and get to know more about you. It's your wife and I are friends, uh, and so I kind of know you through Facebook, and I, I think your story is really funny because I didn't really know exactly what was going on because your, your wife uh, kind of volun- voluntold you. <laughs> I don't, maybe, maybe you were down, but she like volunteered you in, in like a message to me. She's like, I think Dominic would love to talk about it. And I was like, I, I don't like check with him, <laughs> make sure he's all good. Uh, but she's like, yeah, yeah, I'll check with him. I'll check with him. But that's how this got hooked up because she saw the podcast online and then, and then connected with you. And then I think like a week later we were like rolling and setting up a time frame. Oh yeah, for sure. Cause like for us talking about it was really a key piece of how we dealt with it. Oh my gosh. Okay. Well, I'm super excited to hear more about the story, but before we get into uh, the, the story and kind of what your guys' journey was, tell us about you. Where are you from? Uh, who, who's Dominic? And then give us the story all the way up to when uh, you and your bride met and decided to start having kids. Yeah. So I, I grew up in, in Germany and lived there for most of my life. So I'm really, I'm still a the resident alien here. <laughs> uh, so I grew up in a kind of a more rural area in southwestern Germany, kind of between near Switzerland and near Stuttgart too, you know, where they make Mercedes and so on. And it, when I say rural, it's not like American rural where you can drive for hours and there's nothing, but it was like, it's very densely populated and there's like towns and cities all around. And, you know, like in a few hours, it could be in Paris or Munich or Frankfurt or, right. or in Italy. Um, my family life... You know, they were really very loving. Um, and I have, a, I have an older brother and then who's four years older than me. And I have a younger brother who's 15 years younger than me. 15, wow. So I was really like, I, I saw him grow up from, yeah. from this tiny little baby to, to a, a teenager or like, you know, until I left, left the house and went to study. Yeah. Um, so, so that was kind of interesting uh, surprise. And how old is he now? Uh, now he is 22. Wow. Wow. Yeah. And um, yeah, and then I, I went to college. I studied business and engineering. I, I did a lot of youth ministry in the, in the, in the church. I'm a Catholic, and that was really formative for me. And when I graduated, I felt like more drawn towards ministry. So then I started studying theology. For that, I moved to, to Vienna in Austria and, and got my theology degree there. 
Yeah, and during that time, I, I you know, I'm a German. We take a lot of vacation. We go all over the place, and we have tons of <laughs> vacation. You think Germans are known for that? You know, like, I live in Los Angeles. You like you can't walk down Hollywood Boulevard without meeting a tons of Germans during a vacation. <laughs> it's so funny. It's so cute. <laughs> Absolutely. Yeah, and. Yeah, so I took a long vacation because a friend of mine was studying abroad for a semester in, in San Diego. And I packed up some other friends and we did like a little road trip and New York and San Francisco and rented a car and we went all, all down California, uh, hit up the Death Valley and swung by the Grand Canyon uh, and Yosemite. And then uh, we ended up in, in San Diego. And that's where I met Sarah, who was uh, my future wife, and yeah. <laughs> your friend who's been studying there. Uh, I wish I could say I met her at church, but it was at a bar. Yeah, <laughs> yeah a lot of, that happens to a lot of people. It does, for sure. Yeah, and we, we met up and my, some of my other friends went home and then I had like another 10 days in San Diego and like we met a lot of times uh, before I went home. And then a few weeks later, we started Skyping and, you know, kind of went, went like we stayed in touch a lot and a year later she went on like a like to work and travel abroad to ireland which was you know somewhat close to austria <laughs> so then we we started visiting each other for like weeks or weekends at a time. Is nowhere near austria <laughs> yeah. like, well, <laughs> it's like no, it's not. Like maybe in the U.S., that distance would be like, oh, it's like all in the same state. It could be, but I've been to Europe uh, twice, and I'm like, that's like 25 different. Like that's a plane, that's a channel, that's a couple different trains, that's a bus. I'm like, no, that's not close. Oh yeah, yeah. It's like a, I think it's like a two-hour flight, two and a half hours. Oh so. yes, yeah, straight, straight over. So sure. like flying, yeah, and and Dublin is great for flying. I have tons of connections. Oh, I've always wanted to go. When I went to Europe, I went when I was uh, 15, 16, and we did backpacking and like sleeping on the trains and stuff. And uh, we didn't quite do hostels, uh, but we we did a lot of the like you jump on the train, you get a you get a room, and you sleep on the train going from one part of you know Europe to the other you get up in the morning travel around look at stuff and then get back on the train at night and you just do this like across like all of Europe so I had a blast doing that when I was 16 uh and then we, my wife and I went again we went to France and to the UK uh for our honeymoon uh when I was 25 and so uh I've got I've had a chance to go both different times but it's funny uh, my dad was leading the trip when I did it when I was younger and then I was leading the trip again when I did it when I was older and there's some things where I was like, man, my dad was right. <laughs> and then also like the freedom of traveling a different way. It was good because my dad had to walk everywhere. So I think my perception of how far things are away in Europe is a little bit ridiculous because I think my dad just like, no, we're essentially taking the long way everywhere. So you're like, oh, well, it's just a two hour flight. And I'm like, oh, yeah, that's like really reasonable. <laughs> uh, oh, and Europe is beautiful and on train. Yeah. Oh, so uh, far. Well, much. driving through uh, like Switzerland and I think we drove through, not drove, but riding the train through Belgium, Germany, Austria, Switzerland, down to Italy, that train. It was just freaking gorgeous. I remember going around corners into these mountain ranges and you're just like, how does this place exist? Like I'm from San Diego, yeah. people say it's beautiful, but it's essentially a desert. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's always, when I talk to Americans who, who are traveling to Europe and they, they always have like, you know, on a itinerary where they hit up the big cities, just two days, and then they're renting cars and that just doesn't make any sense over there. It's like the default over here, but like over there, 
you want to be on the train. You don't want to have that car that is kind of holding you down. And so, you know, all right, everybody, now, you know, if you're going to go over to Europe, make sure you get in the train. Okay. So you, so she's uh, abroad. She's, she's visiting Ireland. Is she Irish? She has a little bit of Irish. I mean, she has that red hair. That yeah, yeah. It's a little, a little Irishness, but I mean, it's totally mixed. Um, yeah, and she just wanted to experience it and be a little abroad. And, you know, so this was work and travel, but I think she worked more than she traveled. Okay. Except for going to Vienna. Is that where yeah. you met up? Yeah, so a few times we met up in Vienna and she came over and a few times we met up in Dublin and I got to experience Dublin and came to like it. Mm. So that was really nice. And at that time, really our relationship kind of developed. Like even before that, in that, in that um, a year before that, um, we weren't really in a relationship. We were just in touch. And then we when she was in, in Dublin, living in Dublin, we, we became committed. And of course, we're looking towards the future, mm -hmm. her, her going back to America. And, uh, and she, you know, she was done with her bachelor. And I told her, you know, like, why don't you do your master in Vienna? Because <laughs> yeah. it's, it's really obvious. You don't know any German and everything's in German here. But... <laughs> But I mean, there were some really some upsides. Um, she studied art history and for art history, Vienna is just a great city. And then additionally, there's hardly any tuition fees. So that was another, other hook, how I got her. Yeah. So. All right. So, yeah. And when did you guys uh, decide to get married? So that was in 2013. So by that time she had lived in Vienna for three years has had almost been done with her master and we started moving in together oh, nice and in 2014 so we got married in 2013 2014 we both graduated at the end of the year and um and then we said no let's go to america i got my green card with the marriage was that hard oh it was hard it was a long process yeah. there were so many steps I certainly I appreciate that being married to an American is kind of the easiest way to get it, but there were so many hoops to go through, and I, yeah, and I, and they told us that we were really lucky because they had like someone working in immigration and at the, at the consulate in Vienna, and that kind of took half a year off the process. Or so. Wow. Well, yeah, you got lucky. Yeah. And so then you guys moved. Did you guys move directly to LA? Yeah, we moved directly to LA. We didn't have any jobs, but we had a bunch of fa family here. Yeah, a lot not? Of, not a lot of movies start right there. We didn't have any jobs. We moved to LA, man. Just in Hollywood, make it work. Yeah, you watch. I don't know. You watch House Hunters, and they always already have a job abroad. But <laughs> we just came here. Uh, we moved in with her mom for a few months and started looking for jobs. And we got some good jobs. She. Yeah. What do you guys do now? Uh, now Sarah works for the Hammer Museum just part of UCLA and it's, it's really awesome. It's a good, good employee. It's really what she wanted to do, cool. uh, working in a museum. I work for the Catholic church. At first I worked for the archdiocese of Los Angeles. Cool. And now I work at a parish at St. Monica's parish in Santa Monica. Oh, Santa Mon yeah, that's a gig right there. Are you kidding me? What do you do at the parish? I do faith formation. So I, I run the confirmation program. I do some adult f faith formation. Do you do catechism stuff? 
Yes, exactly. Oh, I'm so jealous. That's the one thing in the Protestant tradition that's just not, not really present. And that's one of the biggest things I've been bummed about. I didn't know much about catechism until I went in and got my uh, master's in theological studies. And one of my professors was from the diocese in Colorado Springs. And uh, we learned a lot about catechism through that. And I was like, this is so freaking cool. I just remember thinking that was so awesome. I'm jealous. All right. Well, okay. So you guys get there. Uh, you're working in Santa Monica at a parish there. She's working uh, at a museum, which sounds like the most boring job in the world, but <laughs> sounds like it's a blast for her. When did you guys make the decision to start trying to have kids? Uh, so like pretty, pretty early on, like in, um, like being here one year or so like in 2016, Sarah started bugging me about it and said she wanted to have children now. She said uh, she always wanted to have children um and for me i always wanted to have children but it wasn't i didn't feel like an urge it was just for me it was just like a given like of course i'm gonna have children like i i loved growing up in a family that was very very close we told each other almost like everything where i feel super loved and supported by my parents and, but, you know, but I didn't feel like I first wanted to get life more in order. I was like, let's get rid of the debt first. Let's, you know, let's get more stable. Like, how are we going to, how are we going to have enough money to have a child and all these things? Mm. And at that time, of course, we were like a little naive to think like, oh, when you try, you just get pregnant, right? I get it. Yeah. It's just, you, you put your order in and it's there on Monday. Okay. <laughs> okay cool. Well, um, well, tell us, tell us the story. I, I, I know very little about your guys' story, so I'm coming in kind of blind, but um, I, I do know that you had uh, several miscarriages. Uh, when, when, did, when did that start? Because you have, you have a beautiful little one now and just the cutest stinking kid uh, I've seen in a long time, uh, but I know that comes after kind of some of this. So um, if you're ready, why don't you go ahead and tell us the story? Sure. Um, so we got pregnant pretty quickly. And then uh, it was about pretty, eight pretty weeks. Pretty quickly. Like two months. Oh, yeah, that's quick. Yeah. Yeah. So, um, and then when we came in for the ultrasound at about eight weeks, you know, there was no, no growth, no heartbeat at that point. So it was, um, it had died like a week before that. Yeah, because they and, do it out by like the size of the fetus. They measure it out, right? Is that kind of how they knew? Yes, the size, and even at that time, you should already have like a heartbeat, yeah. a strong heartbeat. Or I think, you know, with the first one, I actually think maybe it was just not big enough at eight weeks, and the heartbeat was too weak. And then we went in a week later just to confirm, okay. and by that time, it was was clear that it was lost. Yeah. Um, and that was very devastating. It was really traumatic. Like I think kind of the worst thing was be in that room. And to get that news that you didn't expect at all. Tell me about that experience of going into the room, especially that first time, because we our our first um, was also a miscarriage. Uh, and yeah, just just walk me through a little bit. What what was that like? How long did the process take? What what happened in the moment? Yeah, I think you go in, you know, for this this eight weeks ultrasound, and it's it's a bit of a apprehension. You know, you want everything to be all right, but of course you don't know. And then, you know, they, they take out the ultrasound and, and um, uh, look at the picture. And then doctor tells you, you know, this is not, uh, it's not, it's not going well. 
Mm. And then, of course, there's uh, Sarah cried a lot. And, you know, I tried to be strong and uh, support her and be there for her and, you know, hold her. Um, yeah. And then went home and, you know, scheduled to follow up with to make sure that it's like that. Yeah. Went in a week later. And uh, and then it was really absolutely certain. You know? And then they they um, more crying, more pain, more yeah. grief. And then they give you these very uncomfortable options that you know uh, it's, it has to get out. If it doesn't get out, it can get cause an infection over time. Mm -hmm. So you can either uh, wait or you kind of like vacuum it out, so to speak. Mm -hmm. Or you get this medication that makes it go away. Yeah, it's also initial evacuation. What did you, if you don't mind me asking, what did you guys decide on that first one? On the first one, I'm kind of still mixing up the first and the second. I think we just waited. Okay. Waited, and a few days later, and we kind of like set a, set ourselves a date and said, but if it doesn't come by that day, then we're going to take the medication. Yeah. And a few days later, it you know it came with a lot of. Uh, pain and just at home yeah. so it's kind of kind of a d difficult process I always felt like it, it's so hard not to not to see it you know not to have it because it's so tiny mm -hmm. and it comes out with all this you know, other stuff that is in there it goes out and uh, so mostly it's just on the, on the toilet in the toilet so like it's just gone in a way yeah it's I, from the people I've interviewed it's pretty it's pretty abrupt because yeah, there's tissue and other fluids and other things that are included in that. And this is this is some of the stuff too. I appreciate your willingness to kind of talk about it because this is some of the stuff that kind of mutes the conversation when it comes up in families, among friends. And that, that's why I, what I think can make this subject so hard to talk about is in order to actually talk about it, you have to be like, well, here's what happened. Here's what it felt like. Here's what it looked like. You know, and then sometimes people are like, ooh, like it's a gross booger. And it's like, look, if you don't want to talk with me about it, that's fine. But I'm not going to pretend like this wasn't my experience. So, so you guys had to go through that. Oh, gosh, man, what, what was that like after? So it passed naturally the first time. You said it happened like a week later. Is that what you said? Yes. Okay. So what was that like moving on from there? Well, then it was, of course, uh, yeah, we, we asked ourselves, is this something that's just going to happen over and over? Or is this right. just a one-off? Mm -hmm. um, I'm, I mean, we, we talked a lot about it with other people because, because we had already told a lot of people that, in, that, that we were pregnant. Yeah. And in, in retrospect, I'm very, very happy and like, grateful that we did that mm -hmm. uh, because I remember even like being like six, seven weeks pregnant and we already started telling people we started Mm -hmm. Telling you know family first, parents, uh, grand some of the grandparents, and and then some of the colleagues at work. And I was working at the Archdiocese. I was working with a lot of Hispanics, and you know especially them, but other people too. Like told me, oh, you shouldn't say you're pregnant before you're like 12 weeks. And I didn't. That didn't make sense to me. Yeah. And they say that because of course, the earlier you are, the more miscarriages happen. So you don't want to, so I think the idea behind it is you don't say it and everybody gets excited, excited and then you lose it and then everybody's bummed. But what I experienced over these, over these three miscarriages is that, you know, people share your joy, but they also share your pain. Yeah. 
and they carry it for you. Yeah, I felt that same thing. I remember early on, I, I, I don't want to defend what, what I was saying and how I was feeling too much um, because early on when we talked about starting to get pregnant, I, I remember that we had friends that had not said anything until 2021, 20, like almost into the third trimester that they were pregnant or like well into their second trimester. Um, and I remember hearing like, yeah, you're not supposed to tell people till you like know for sure it's viable. And I remember saying long before we had the miscarriage, well, I, I would want people to know because I wouldn't want to go through that alone. Like I wouldn't want to be on my own going through a miscarriage trying to heal. And so when we went into it, we both felt the same way, but we, again, we just never thought we were going to have a miscarriage. I don't know how you felt, but when we went in to our eight week, I was excited to hear the heartbeat and it was awesome. We got to hear the heartbeat. And when, when we went in for our 12 week, I was excited to hear more of the heartbeat. I just didn't even phase me. I had no idea. And Kristen, my wife, she also was like nothing, didn't have any idea that the miscarriage was about to happen. But after it happened and we started telling people, it, it was awful and it was heartbreaking and it was horrific. And I was so grateful for the support that I did have because it, it wasn't a lot, which was one of the reasons behind doing the podcast was being able to talk to other guys because getting a chance to talk to other men who have gone through it has been a huge element of like my support structure. I can't imagine what I would have been like had it been a secret. And then we only told a few people, man, some of the stuff that saved me from my super dark places were guys coming up and being like, Hey, that happened to us. Like, do you want to talk about it? And being like, yeah, absolutely. I'd love to talk about it. So yeah, I see what, I see what you're saying. I get why people want to wait. I, I get it. Like, I don't want to be too judgmental, but I also oh. would, I, I would tell guys like, yeah, don't, don't keep a secret. Oh yeah. No, I, I can understand when people want to wait, but for us, like talking about it was so helpful. It was healing. Um, and it also like when we when we told people, so many women came forward and and like shared like you know I had a miscarriage too or I had two miscarriages, and that kind of opened our eyes on how common it is, and right. um, and it also like what you talked about like people say they want to wait till it's safe, but like we learned there is no safe time. There's just ah, that's so good. There's just a less safe time which is early and a safer time that is later, but. It's never safe. That's yeah. That's a good word, man. It it is it is never really safe. Um, and again, yeah. It's I I think I was pessimistic. I thought, and I think some people might have thought this as well. But I was really pessimistic because I thought, well, the only reason they're keeping a secret is so that I don't know. It's like they're being protective. But I had this negative view of it. Like, why would you do that? Why would you keep that from people that love you? Why would you not like include people on this really important thing that you're going through? Um, I, I since have not, I've changed my, my tone a little bit on that one. I, I, I think just because I understand how really difficult it can be. And if you don't necessarily want to share that with the world, Hey, that's, that's, that's your deal. But, um, okay. So tell, tell me a little bit more. So you had that first miscarriage and then you guys were processing through, um, you know, do, do we want to try this again? Do we think it's going to happen again? So when did you decide to start trying again? Cause you mentioned you have three, that's what I thought. So when did you decide to start going for the second? What? What kind of pushed you to try? Did you approach it differently? Um, and then walk me through how that, that second one was different. Uh, yeah. I th uh, so I think there was certainly more fear with the second. Uh, so, but first the difficulty was getting pregnant again. Uh, I think we had a lot of, or like a few people in the family that told us, oh, you need to wait, like, or like you need to wait half a year or something like that. And our doctor told us you don't have to wait at all. Mm -hmm. So 
that was interesting. And I think we didn't wait. We, maybe we waited one cycle or so, or one month. But then it was really hard and frustrating that we did not get pregnant uh, again for a long time, for like six or seven months. Mm. And and I, like, it, it feels like such a long, long time. And you're worried. You're worried about another miscarriage. You're worried about not getting pregnant. You're worried like, is something wrong with us? Which is so funny because the average is six to 12 months for people to get pregnant. And then you make it six or seven months and it's, I get it because we did the same thing. Yeah. It's just every cycle is like another disappointment. Another disappointment. Mm-hmm. And probably more for Sarah than for me. I, I took it more lightly, let's say, or like more hopeful in a way. Yeah. Well, it's different for guys, right? You just come in and put in your deposit. And if it doesn't build interest, that's not your fault. <laughs> you know, it's kind of, it's a little bit different, I think, for the woman when it's like, she's really hoping that something happens inside of her. But yeah, it's just different for guys. Yeah. 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 It's hard. It, yeah. Because it affects her body so much and it's like, I feel it much more. Um, so yeah, then we got pregnant again. And then the, the same thing repeated almost almost exactly the same i think the the second exactly the same the second pregnancy made it was like a week older before it died maybe um so it was kind of a similar story with ultrasounds and then you know just finding out there's no heartbeat you gotta tell me and where where was your head at when you found out that it happened again and not just again but almost the same exact way like what was going on inside of you it was horrible. It was like, you're really thinking like, you know, something, maybe something's wrong with us. Maybe there's something genetic or something in the womb or something that, uh, or something not right with the sperm that just doesn't make things happen. And, and you're again, you're like in this room, again, you have like this, this ultrasound and then this horrible news. And it's just so, it's just so painful. So disappointing. What did it hurt? It's a, it probably hurt the same both times, but what was it? Was it just elevated pain? Like, did you did you feel did you feel more hurt? Did you feel more angry? Like, how how were the emotions? I'm just curious to listen because God God forbid, I hope I never have to go through it again. But um, I can't imagine having to go through it again. Like, part of me just goes, I don't think I could get through that one if it, if it happened again. I think it was kind of more pain and also more anxiety about what's you know, can we even have children? Right. Uh, that, that's the big, it's the big fear that, that creeps up in you in, inside of you. Mm. Yeah. Um, so the second time we, we, we approached it a little differently. We got that medication to kind of get it out. Mm-hmm. Uh, Cause Sarah was like, you know, I, I want it out. Yeah. I uh, didn't want to wait for it to come naturally. Yeah. Uh, and we did that a uh, second time. We also were a little bit more conscious about the grief and the need to grieve. So we kind of made sure that we can catch, catch it, so to speak. Uh, I think, so, so, I mean, this is not pretty, but it's, uh, you got to think practically, right? Like uh, something that's that, you know, need to get it. So I think we used the strainer and then the, and the toilet and just caught that, um, the tiny thing mm-hmm. and um, we put it in a little box mm-hmm. and, you know, went out in a park and uh, did a little ritual, you know, like a grievance ritual. 
yeah. and buried it. Mm. So, you know, just stood there and talked and prayed and uh, put this little box in the ground with a piece of, uh, of an ultrasound of it, you know. Yeah. Do you, have, you, have you gone back to that place? Um, yes, but like not, not thinking about it or maybe like a little thinking about here it is, but not in a commemorative fashion. Mm. Did um, it help to be able to, to, uh, to bury the baby and, and, and have that time? Or I, I imagine it helped in some way cause you're, you're speaking of it, you know, kind of fondly, but, um, did that help? How did that help? Why did that help? I think I think it helped. It, it it just you know kind of makes it real. This my my impression of of what I always thought the difficult thing about talking about miscarriage is that you don't see it. You know, like if if someone if a human dies who is born, you know, like everybody has seen him or her, or like it doesn't matter if it's a baby or an old man. You like you have seen that, but. The miscarriage is like it's just been inside, so it's hard to see. And if you like burying it, burying it kind of makes it makes it more real, makes more. Well, it's those social uh, patterns that you're used to, right? Like that's what happens when someone dies: is you you have a burial or you have a memorial, you have some kind of experience where you commemorate, memorialize, and celebrate. And when you have the miscarriage, especially when a lot of them come so fast, like through an unexpected natural evacuation or, um, you know, if you do take the pill or if you do the DNC, it's, it's none of it feels normal, especially if you've never gone through it before. And so figuring out how to memorialize, how to commemorate, how to celebrate is it, there's, there's no, um, there's no like social paradigm for that. You don't know exactly where to put it. So you have to be creative, like what you guys did. Um, okay. So you, you buried the second, um, thanks for sharing that, by the way, that I know that's a really yeah. intimate moment and an intimate time. And I, I think it's a lot of people have gone through experiences like that and not talked about it. So I appreciate you sharing it. Um, okay. Uh, you, you buried it. Uh, what about that night? I'm curious, like you, you guys said you talked about it, but where do you go from there? How did you go from there? Hmm. So, uh, I mean, you, you also think like, you know, what can we do? Like if there's, is there a problem? Like it happened twice, is there a problem? What can we do? So you start with all this fertility stuff and you know, like tests and blood tests and genetic tests and sperm tests that I don't know what, what all these, all these things. And you try to find a cause of- It started happening right away. You guys were like, hey, we got to start getting into this test stuff. I certainly after the second. Okay. You know, and that actually was what even got us to know about the third, because the third, the third miscarriage, that was like four or five months later, uh, we had a third miscarriage, but that's, that was a, what they call a chemical pregnancy. So what's a chemical pregnancy? A chemical pregnancy is if you, you wouldn't even know about it if you didn't test for it. So, okay. So, so there's these little test strips yeah. that are like a pregnancy test, but you could like very early. Right. And we, we, Sarah kept like using those very regularly yeah. and found out that she was pregnant. It was like four, four or five weeks. And you know, and then you, you, 
and you see like the line gets stronger and stronger the more yeah, like the two lines and then one gets like blurry and then the other one kind of comes back it's like the hormone test right yes yeah, yeah. and i think it is a hormone test it was just it just looked a little different because you you bought you kind of buy it in bulk for monitoring over longer periods of time. Like Forty strips at a time, yeah. I know <laughs> yeah, and and then we saw that there's a there's a pregnancy, and uh, that was I don't know I think it was like a Friday, and two three days later the and it was a weak line you know but it was still clear it was clear this is a pregnancy, mm -hmm. and a few days later. Uh, Sunday or Monday, we already saw that the line is getting weaker. So this is already kind of gone. And you probably like, and if you didn't test for it, you probably wouldn't even notice, or maybe just your period's a little off. You might think you're like a week late. And you're like, what was that about? Yeah. And we went to the doctor and they kind of, you know, they made us do more tests just to, and they confirmed it's a pregnancy. And then they wanted to do more testing because they, they were worried that it could be an ectopic pregnancy that, you know, can cause permanent damage. So, so anyway, that one, so I'm saying, I'm thinking that one wasn't as painful because it was kind of, we felt like pregnant for three days and that was, that was it, but it was still well, it's a hard loss. Some of the other experiences are going through like doing, doing that actual evacuation process twice, I'd imagine not having to do that again, not wouldn't minimize it, but I think would soften the blow a little bit. You know, it's like, I, I would, I would assume it's like seeing two people die and then hearing about someone dying. I mean, I can't, I mean, for her, that's not, that's not the same thing, but I mean, for a guy, it probably feels different. That makes sense. Okay. Then you had the third one. You kind of, I got to know like what kept you like, so you did all the testing. Did you guys find anything? Did you, did you find anything that was reliable as what was causing the miscarriages? No, we found nothing. We, as far as we knew, everything's in order. Everything. She had like a great egg reserve and my sperms were, were good. Uh, I I'd like to say they were super, but I guess they weren't like, they were just pretty normal. Just normal sperm. Just your, your, your uh, run of the mill. <laughs> That's fun yeah ours was ours was interesting because uh we had what's called a partial molar pregnancy have you heard about any of this stuff oh my gosh so at some point we, we were chris Kristen's going to interview me for the men on miscarriage podcast at some point because uh, i'm interviewing all these guys and i still haven't told like my full story all the way through yet so at some point we're going to do that we thought that would be powerful um but uh, in short, ours was interesting because there's these things called molar pregnancies and a molar pregnancy, a full molar, what happens is, is the egg comes out and the egg has no genetic material. And so then when the sperm fertilizes it, it doesn't have enough chromosomes to build any life. And so, uh, but it has enough to grow. So it, it basically becomes a tumor, some, not typically cancerous, but, but a tumor. Mm. And so a full molar is there's never heartbeat. You know, this is when, you know, they pull things out and they've got teeth and they've got spinal cords and toes, but it's not, it's not like a person, uh, just parts uh, that the genetics start to build and don't know why or how. A partial molar pregnancy is interestingly enough, the egg is fine, but for whatever reason, it gets fertilized by two sperm, which is not supposed to happen. And so then when that happens, there's way too many chromosomes. And then you get, uh, if I'm understanding this correctly, you get one fetus, but that you also get this other growth that's going on. 
And so ultimately that other growth is taking nutrients, it's taking space, and then it makes it so that that other pregnancy isn't viable. And so we had to go through that, which was so weird. So partial molar pregnancies, I think is one in 4,000 miscarriages, not pregnancies, one in 4,000, no, one in a thousand miscarriages. And so it's one in 4,000 pregnancies. So we felt really lucky on that one. Oh my gosh. Hmm. Uh, But, but it was, it was. It was just odd, man. It, I, I didn't understand how any of that stuff worked. And I wanted like answers. Like we were like, can we test or anything like that? And they were like, this happens in only one in a thousand miscarriages. Like our OBGYN, ugh, our OBGYN said that she's been like an OBGYN for over 20 years. And this is only the second one of people that she's met that have gone through it. So we were like, so the testing's not going to help. She was like, nope, just a freak deal. I was like, hmm. I almost wanted something to be able to point at something to be like that caused it, but it just was like, it just happens. Yeah. It's to me, it was a little shocking too. like, you know, you, you think of pregnancy and like, wow, it's a miracle. It's like two people can make another person. It's how does it even work? And, but then when you get into all these things, you're thinking this is almost like a, a, an assembly line that creates a, a lot of bad parts that have to be thrown away. Mm-hmm. But a lot. A lot. Yeah. I was so shocked. Someone told me it was when I first found out and started looking into it, they're like, yeah, one in five pregnancies is a miscarriage. Not one in five women have one, but one in five pregnancies. So a lot of women will have multiple. Um, and then they said that it's, uh, that's conservative, but if you're a little bit more liberal with your numbers because of the amount of uh, miscarriages that don't get reported, because there's a lot of people that go through what you went through and they don't ever go to the hospital. So there's no record of it. So they said, because of that, uh, they think it's more like one in four which I just am like 25% of pregnancies don't make, you've got to be kidding me. This seems like just insane. Anyway. So that, that just, that just kind of shocked me. So uh, let's continue with the story. So you, you have the third one and weren't sure, but like got confirmation from the doctor that you had a third one. And then what, man, like, how did you guys go on? Like, how did you guys like keep trying? Cause I know you have a kid now. So I know you kept trying. Yeah, oh yeah, for sure. We kept trying, and we like um, kept doing infertility infertility treatment, and you know, looked into more options. And we did a lot of like we did like three or four IUIs because we like for a while we couldn't just couldn't get pregnant. Um, in retrospect, it doesn't may- seem like maybe it wasn't that much time because the first three times we always got pregnant like within six months. Yeah, and the fourth one I think came like after eight or nine months, but it feels like an eternity. And then you do these IUIs for, for us, the IUIs were a total waste of time and money. Explain the IUI. Oh, IUI is like, is, is like this fertility treatment where just the sperm gets kind of like, you, you give the sperm and they wash it or prep it. And then they kind of inject it oh. and they give the woman some hormones. Um, it's a little bit fancier than just, you know, injecting it with a syringe, so yeah, to yeah. speak. Mm-hmm. Going kind of like giving it, going past all the defenses that the womb yeah. has. You just walk them right up to the, uh, the, the goal and go, okay, <laughs> kick it in. Like, it's fascinating. Even though they like go past all the defenses, the success rate is really low. It's like 10 or 20%, which sounds just like trying normally. I think part of the reason that we think pregnancy is so easy is because of like we tell teenagers, like, it's like, well, don't have sex with each other because you'll get pregnant. 
um, you know, you try to scare little boys because they don't, they're, they don't have enough, like, like blood in their brain to not, you know, do dumb stuff. And so it's just like, okay, well just, you know, if you have sex, you're going to get pregnant. And it's like, it's actually really hard to get pregnant. But then I've seen some funny shows that they make the jokes now where they're like, uh, I think it was like Brooklyn nine, nine or something that I was watching a show. And then, uh, somebody they're like, the, two of the main characters are trying to get pregnant and then some random person gets pregnant while they're trying. And they're like, what kind of angel do you, you know, perfect person do you have to be to get pregnant in this world? And somebody turns the corner that they hate. They're like, I'm pregnant. They're like, ah. but it feels that way. with like teenagers. teenagers yeah. Get- and it's, and it's like some people get pregnant right away and some need to try a long time. And until you try, you don't really know which, really? which category you're in. And with the IUI, maybe for, maybe for some people, that's the difference between getting pregnant or not. But for us, it didn't do anything. Yeah. So, so we looked into the two uh, other alternatives. One would be adoption. So we're talking about that and trying yeah. to think that through. Uh, and certainly we were open to it, but I, I didn't feel like it was the time yet to do that. Mm-hmm. And the other way, one was to do an IVF. Okay. And, In vitro fertilization. Yes. So That's expensive, isn't it? That is extremely expensive. That is like... Even with the insurance we had, it would still have been like 20,000. And that's, that's just to have a shot. You know, there's like, there's no guarantee. Yeah. Like I was thinking at that point that I would rather adopt because yeah. adoption, adoption is also expensive, not that expensive, but you kind of have a guarantee, like you get a child at the end. Yeah. It depends on how you do adoption too, though. Like if you adopt through the county, you know, through, through kids who maybe have, have aged, like not aged out, but timed out of their foster thing or, or parents have removed rights or the rights of parents that have been removed. Um, like some counties will actually, like if, if you were to get approved, you, you get paid the same way you get foster paid, like until they're 18. And then they still get, they still get that funding until they're like 22. And so my, my wife and I are foster parents. And so that's kind of, we, we figured that out was, uh, we've had foster kids and then, um, if their parental rights get removed and they need adoption, you can adopt them, but then they continue to send that check every month, which it was like, seriously. <laughs> and they're like, yeah. So they'll pay you to adopt somebody. It's like, wow, this is crazy. So I've always talked to people about that. They're interested in adoption. I'm like, Hey, don't, you know, make sure you call the County and see if you can get approved there. But yeah. Yeah. I also, I also tried to get Sarah onto that train and was like, cause I like getting paid for it. That sounds great. But she's uh, rightfully kind of worried that, you know, if the, the, the parents get the parental rights again, then you like, you're so emotionally invested in a child that it's just uh, yeah. going to be gone. Yeah. I, uh, I interviewed Ted Brent last week, beginning of last week for the, uh, the part two, I got his will be the next interview I post up on the podcast, but he and his wife, they uh, adopted uh, four kids and he, he talked about two different kinds of miscarriages because they went through a miscarriage because they were infertile. And they battled infertility for forever. And so they just like threw protection out the window, like didn't really worry about it. And then after adopting four kids, they got pregnant and they were like, are you kidding me? And that was the miscarriage that, that happened for them, which is just like a heart wrenching story. You're just like, you gotta be kidding me. Seriously. Like, so it was this thing where it felt like a miracle, like we can't get pregnant. And then all of a sudden like, ah, and then it's like, then you have a miscarriage and you're like, wow, that's kind of straight up, straight back down again. But, uh, he talked about miscarriage, the, the physical one, but also what he, um, uh, adoption miscarriage where he said they had had instances of adoption more than once where you're going all the way up until like the birth. And then after the birth, the mom's like, I'm going to keep the baby. And so this whole time you're preparing and waiting to like adopt this child, everything's in order. You're doing all the stuff. You're, you're literally preparing your life to enter a newborn into it. 
And then the day of it just, the mom changes their mind. And uh, which is like, just, it's just a complex feeling. It's a complex situation. Um, but they said, he said like, it's, you get similar feelings. Like it's not your baby. You haven't been growing it, but it's been growing and you've been growing into it. And so that's just like a unique thing. It's so they, he had some, you should go back and listen to it. He had some interesting thoughts on that. He was like, well, what they decided is, well, we're not going to not go into trying to adopt in the same way that we would not, not try to have a baby just because there might be a miscarriage. They're like, we're still going to go for the baby. And so just because we might not be able to adopt the child, we're not going to not go for it. And I was like, that's like a really mature, wise way to look at it. I wish that I was anywhere near that level of maturity and wisdom. because <laughs> I don't feel that I am. Uh, but yeah, that, anyway, it's just kind of an interesting note. So you guys talked about adoption. You talked about IVF. That wasn't really there. The IUI stuff didn't really work. Now what? Yeah, and then there, there's actually a bit of a kind of incidence that might have been a medical thing that revealed something. So we got some tests for IVF that would have just been just been tests to like think of it viable or something. Yeah. And one of these tests was thyroid, and thyroid had already always tested normal for Sarah, but then we found out that we're pregnant at that time, but we kind of got the test anyway because it was scheduled already and and like the thyroid showed up low or high it's a little confusing with thyroid but essentially like um it might be and there's a theory behind that that is not completely proven that there are women who have like a normal thyroid but then when they get pregnant the thyroid doesn't perform enough so it kind of dips hmm. and you can help that with medication to bring it back up so we did that and um, we're thinking maybe that, that, I mean, it wasn't like extremely low, but we think maybe that that's what made the difference with our fourth pregnancy mm. to, to get it all the way through because with the fourth one, everything was fine. And uh, she took the thyroid medication all the way through. And I, we'll never know if that was the deciding thing or if that was just yeah. pure coincidence. Interesting. But I'm kind of happy that we got that test just as a pure coincidence because we're looking at IVF. But what we didn't know at that point, we were already pregnant and a few weeks in. And, <laughs> and surely we were worried a lot during that pregnancy. It, it yeah. was a long journey. Um, what was it like going into like every appointment now that you've had these three different miscarriages, all different experiences? What was it like going into each appointment? I think like especially like the eight week was really there was a lot of anxiety going in there a third time. Um, but the further you get, the, the better you feel, you know, the more you feel everything's going well, every, every test that you do. And that says like, you know, everything's on track, everything is good. It's growing well, everything looks all right. All the, the values are okay. Then you're like, Oh yeah, this is awesome. Like we're, we're going to get there. Mm. You get, you get less worried. Yeah. And then your daughter's born. Yes. So on September 28th of last year, our daughter was born mm. and it was just like a really beautiful, beautiful moment. And, you know, like being finally being there and everything went well went really well. Yeah. And then you hold that. Wow. Well, that's great. Well, you hold that baby in your arms and you, it's almost scary how like all the, the struggle you went through kind of fades already you know, with every day that you're with your Little, little child yeah it what was interesting for me like when when our daughter came out of the womb she almost felt like a stranger to me yeah 
Ah. It's like I didn't feel that instant connection, like, oh, yeah, you're mine. And you're like, but it was like, who are you? Yeah, you showed up out of nowhere. <laughs> but now we're like so happy we're like yeah. playing all the time. And, you know, it's she's she has a lot of energy, she changes your whole life and your schedule and everything. It's yeah, beautiful. Yeah, I'd imagine some of that, because um, there's all kinds of stuff with immediate births. Like there's the postpartum stuff, but I think for guys, like you just said, it is, it's like, oh, there's just this stranger. Because guys don't go through the process of carrying a child. Like you just don't. You know, everything feels kind of external to you. And then all of a sudden, now you're holding it. And it's like, hmm. I'd imagine that feels crazy and weird. I can't wait. I'm so excited to, to go through that. But that, that makes sense to me that, that it feels weird. Yeah, and I was like, I, I couldn't wait for it. Like the last weeks before the delivery, I, I was like, give me my baby now. I want my baby. <laughs> Get it out of there. Um, All right, everybody, that was part one of my interview with Dominic. If you want to catch the rest of the interview, just go ahead and click next or go back to the main screen and click Dominic interview part two. Thanks for joining us.